Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Hello, youth groupers way back on the couches. We're so glad you're with us. We love you. Awesome. Wow, it is great it is great to be here. It's actually, I think it's been a month since I have been in Kalamazoo, which is crazy. Uh, the, the holiday season has been really busy. I've been in Vandalia a lot, and I uh, just wanted to let you know that, man, things are really going great down there. Uh, the, the church is continuing to grow, and we're drawing more and more people in, and uh, we see people getting plugged in on Sunday mornings, and it's just really been fun to be part of that, that church and kind of so intimately involved with what's happening down there, even though it does mean that I'm away from Kalamazoo uh, a lot. It's, uh, it's gone really well, and I just want to take a moment just to say thank you. As many of you know, I oversee the children's ministry here at, at New Day, and the, the, we just have a, an amazing team of people serving uh, the kids every single Sunday. It's given me the opportunity to, to be free to spend this much time in Vandalia, so that's been great. So I just want to thank you to all the Sunday school teachers and all the, the nursery volunteers. You guys are amazing, even though they're serving right now and they can't hear me. But anyway, say thank you to them because they are so valuable and so integrally important to what we do on Sunday mornings. So... Anyway, so I want to talk this morning to, about joy, uh, as Aaron said, and we want to, we're finishing out our year-long series on the, the core values, and I imagine that many of you are going to be excited to not have to recite the core values every Sunday, um, but it's been really good, I think. It's been really helpful because I think for us as a church to fulfill what we are called to do, to, to extend the kingdom, to, to reveal Jesus, to be salt and light in this community, we need to understand who we are as a church. And so that is why we spent three months talking about the Father heart. And that's why we took a quarter talking about intimacy. And that's why we took uh, a quarter talking about restoration. And really, this the restoration leads directly into the final quarter, into the extending the kingdom, into evangelism. My favorite definition for spiritual transformation is that we are, let's see, let me think about this, being conformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. You see, we spend time kind of getting restored. We spend time working on our souls and working on our hearts because we want to be whole and pure so that we can bring that same love and we can bring that same joy to the world around us. Right? And it's so important. And today I want to talk about joy. And even though this is kind of a, a Christmassy message, we're still close to Christmas, right? And the, we're talking about joy and we really need to understand the, the foundations of biblical joy if we are going to effectively share what we have with a world that is in desperate need of real joy. Amen? All right, so, there we go. So the main idea today is uh, that we need to find our joy, 
um, in the promise of Jesus. And we need to learn that we are loved and we are accepted and restored by God, right? That that is where our joy comes from. Our joy doesn't come from our immediate circumstances. Our joy doesn't come from our own identity or how we view ourselves. But our joy comes from the promise of Jesus and how the Father sees us. Right? And so we want to learn that joy isn't based on circumstances and joy comes from God's love and acceptance. So we're going to our passage today is going to be from Luke chapter two, starting in verse eight. I just wrote one verse on there, so you'll just have to follow along in your your Bibles. Um, So Luke two, starting in verse eight, says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And in Luke 2.10, it says, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. And that's really where we're going to stick for this entire message on joy. Luke 2.10. And as we... Look at joy as the gospel writer uh, was intending it. And as we look at the, the term joy as the writers of the New Testament talked about it, we see that they don't talk about joy maybe the way that we think of it sometimes. We kind of equate joy with happiness. But biblical joy is not a fleeting emotion. It's not based on our current situation, right? It's not based on our health or our family's health or our job situation or whether we got the the best toy for Christmas or that we got the new iPhone. Um, I have a story about an iPhone, but I will not tell it. I don't have time for that right now. We'll save that, the iPhone story. So it doesn't, I don't have the newest iPhone and I'm still happy. Really, really. Um, So our joy does not come from that stuff. It's not a fleeting emotion. And also, we need to understand when they were talking about joy, that our joy comes from our hope in an eternal reward, in an eternal destiny. And this uh, is true for us, and we can even see it displayed in the, the life of Jesus as he approaches the cross, right? We see Jesus in the garden, not kind of joyfully high-fiving the disciples, going like, oh, I can't wait to get up on that cross. This is going to be sweet, right? That is not where Jesus is. We see them in, in agony, right? We see him kind of you know, seeking God and saying, if there's any way to take this cup away, if there's any other way that we can get this done, uh, can you, will you do that? Here, can you take this cup away? But not my will, your will be done. Right? And we see him sweating drops of blood. We see Jesus is in agony as he approaches the cross. But the, the book of Hebrews says, but for the joy set before him, He endured the cross. 
And we see that his joy certainly wasn't on the cross, right? He was kind of dreading this horrible, horrible torture and murder, right? But his, he was joyful because he knew what was on the other side of that. And so even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, his joy was based on an eternal hope and an eternal destiny. And it's the same way for you and for me. And I think that the New Bible Dictionary explained it really well in their definition of joy. And they said that joy is not a fleeting emotion. It is a virtue that we can and must cultivate in our lives. It is a quality grounded upon God and derived from him, which characterizes the Christian's life on earth and anticipates eschatologically the joy of being with Christ forever in the kingdom of heaven. So powerful, right? Joy is not a fleeting emotion. It's not about our things. It's not about what's happening right now. But it is uh, focused on a future hope, right? Eschatologically, it just means we're looking forward to the end times when Jesus comes back and we are reunited with the Father and we live with Christ forever in the kingdom of heaven. And because of this hope, because of this hope that we see... Um, uh, that, that God reveals through Jesus, that is promised through Jesus, that is promised through the, the prophets, uh, through the Old Testament, because of this hope, we have real, lasting, and fulfilling joy. And I believe that the arrival of Jesus really, really is the bedrock of this hope. It's the proof that God the Father is passionately, passionately in love with us. And he wants to restore everything to how it was supposed to be. And so it's this promise of love, this promise of acceptance, this promise of restoration that gives us this joy. All right? And the but when the angel came and uh, announced this joy to the shepherds, came and announced the arrival of Jesus, the circumstances of the shepherds and the rulers and all of the people of Israel didn't really change, right? The, the arrival of the angel in Luke 2 was this announcement of great joy. Hey, guys, this is great news for all people. But they were still dealing with all the same stuff that they had to deal with before Jesus came. All right? And we know that if, if we look historically, that the Jewish people, uh, especially the, the religious leaders and, and the Pharisees, were, were planning and preparing and expecting for the arrival of the Messiah. They knew the promise of God. They, they knew that the Messiah was going to come back and he was going to restore Israel and he was going to put them back as a free people that were able to worship God freely and everything was going to be as it should be when the Messiah came back. And so the Pharisees, they also understood the history of Israel that every time the nation would kind of reject God and go do their own things, God would send and these people, whether it's the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Greeks or the Romans or whoever, to come and oppress the Israelites. And so the Pharisees are like, man, if we get all our ducks in a row, if we get all our doctrines correct, if we do everything right, then the Messiah is going to come back and it's, he's going to overthrow the Romans and everything is going to be great again. That was the expectation. But... When the angels come and announce the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, in a, in a sense, right, everything changed. 
But in their day-to-day lives, nothing changed, right? The, the shepherds, after they went and visited uh, Jesus, what did they do? They probably went back and shepherded more, right? And the, the religious leaders, they uh, continued um, teaching and they continued you know, proclaiming the, the laws and all the little fiddly bits that they kind of created over the last few hundred years. That's a... That's a, that's a theological term, the fiddly bits of the Pharisees. You could write that down. Um, and, but after Jesus arrives and there's this, the angels are singing and everybody's excited. There's wise men. All this exciting stuff happens. Yay, Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. And then everything goes back to normal, in a sense. All right? The circumstances of the people didn't change. And so we uh, have hope. What does this teach us? This teaches us that we have hope and we have joy, not based on our current circumstances, because Jesus is here right now. The kingdom is now, right? We can, uh, we can grab hold of the freedom and the joy and the life and the healing of, of Jesus right now. But there's something missing, right? Just like the, the shepherds still had to deal with sin and, and death and they had to still work and they had to deal with all, they had to pay their bills and they had to do all the stuff that they had to do, right? Even though their circumstances of, of life didn't change, there was, a, there was a, something bigger happening. They realized that, man, this arrival of the Messiah that the angels announced, this means that we can continue to hold on to this hope. And because we have this hope of eternal life that we will sit with the Father forever and ever, we have joy today in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our trials. So this is a news of great joy. But not only is it news of great joy, but it's news of great joy for all the people. Right? It's news for all the people. It's not just the religious leaders that the angels come to to announce this great joy. Right? It's great joy for all people. It's to the shepherds, to these regular common people that hear the good news first. And I think that this is significant as we look through the the story of the birth of Jesus, that it's to the shepherds that the announcement happens first, right? Because they're just common, regular people, just like you and just like me. They weren't the religious elite. They weren't the ones, you know, keeping all their ducks in a row and keeping all the fiddly bits connected, right? And so that they had their doctrine in order and everything was right. They were not those guys, right? Those guys were wandering around the streets praying on street corners and stuff, right? They were not the rulers. They were not the authorities. They didn't have influence. These were just regular little people like you and like me, right? And this is incredibly significant because nobody would expect God to announce the arrival of the Messiah to regular people, all right? So if there was a test for little Jewish people, say there's these little Jewish people and they're ready to move from Jewish middle school, North Jewish middle school to North High school, North Jewish, that's, I made that up. There was no such thing. All right, and so they're ready to go on there. They have to pass this test. And one of the questions is, is, if God came to earth, who would he announce it to? A, the Pharisees, B, the rulers, C, the rich and influential, or D, the shepherds. Right? D would have been that joke answer that 
teachers put on multiple choice questions to get a laugh out of the kids, right? Because nobody's going to pick that. Oh, the shepherds, that's crazy. It only makes sense that, you know, well, the Pharisees, they understand the law and they live correctly, right? The rulers, they have a lot of authority, right? Or then there's the rich and the influential. They could kind of tell everybody and they're impressive people. But the shepherds, that is ridiculous, right? Nobody chooses the shepherds. But, but God chooses the shepherds. He chooses to reveal the arrival of Jesus, the Savior, to the shepherds. Because the announcement of joy isn't for the people who have arrived. It isn't for the people who have achieved a lot. It isn't for the people who are influential and are, have got it all put together. This gospel, this good news of great joy is for everybody. It isn't about our works. It isn't about our position. It isn't about our authority or our intelligence or our ability. It is merely about God's grace. God's unmerited favor. He wants to show that he is a loving father who chooses us to be adopted into his family. And that we are given the opportunity to call him Abba Father. And a lot of times we can allow our, our own identity, right? Oh, we're not the religious elite. We are not influential. We're not this. We're not that. Or I don't compare to this person. We let this idea of our lack of self-worth or our own kind of view of our identity compared to other people rob us of joy. Because we are putting our expectations of joy on ourselves, on our own circumstances, and we are forgetting that our joy is founded solely in an eternal hope that we will one day be seated for eternity with God the Father. And so this message of joy is spoken to normal, common folks then, and it is spoken to normal, common folks today, to me and to you. And that is good news Right? It's such good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one who takes away the sin of the world and restores us into right relationship has come. Not just to the religious elite, not just to the influential, not just to the impressive people, right? To everybody. And a lot of times we can believe that we aren't good enough, that we aren't smart enough, that we aren't holy enough, maybe, you know, that we aren't the chosen, right? That we aren't loved by God. We just see ourselves as small and worthless, and we allow this idea, this lie, to rob us of our joy. But God says that we're valuable. God says that we're loved. And the hope revealed through Jesus Christ when he came to this world is truly for you and truly for me. Quiet, quiet, quiet. This is Wynton Marsalis. He is a great trumpet player. And uh, well, I, I couldn't find a picture of me playing the trumpet, so I just picked Wynton. Because um, he is amazing. I bet there is one out there somewhere. There is probably a really good one. And you would have been by my side. Um, anyway, so in high school, I was a pretty good trumpet player, right? Um, and, and I took private lessons every week throughout middle school and the first 
part of, of high school from Mr. Hewitt, who was a really nice guy who's, um, and very, very pleasant. And we, once a week, we'd play together and he would help me. But eventually, I outgrew Mr. Hewitt. And so my parents, uh, when I was 16 or 17, they paid for me to take private lessons from this lady from the Kalamazoo Symphony Orchestra. And so I would, uh, after school, I would get in my, uh, my 84 Ford Escort wagon. This is a brilliant car. I would get in that car and I would drive a half hour uh, up to the middle school that's on Moore's Bridge. I don't know which middle school that is. But anyway, I would go there and I would meet this lady and she, she would give me private lessons, right? And she was a lot different than Mr. Hewitt. All right. Mr. Hewitt was kind of Santa Claus-like and happy and, and encouraging and pleasant. And so I, and so I come to this lady and, and I'm warming up and we play a bit and she's just like, you've not been practicing. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe I haven't, I haven't been practicing a lot, but a, a little bit. And she's like, I'm just wasting my time with you. It's like, I'm just wasting, what is, there's no point in me being here. If you're not going to practice, there's no point in doing this. And as a young, impressionable 16 or 17-year-old kid, I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And so it encouraged me, right, to practice more. In hindsight, I probably could have said something like, oh, we're paying you $25 a half hour, so just deal with it. I'll practice or not. But... That wasn't, that wasn't my response at the time. She freaked me out. She was very intense. She was a little thing and a firecracker. I think they call those people firecrackers. Anyway, she was intense. And, but she made me better. I was, I was, a, I was a, a much better trumpet player because of her. And I spent a lot of time, right? I worked hard at, at being a good trumpet player. And I got a lot of kind of, uh, what would you call it? Um, I felt good about being a good trumpet player, right? Sigo is not a huge school, but I was, I was a great trumpet player and people knew that I was a great trumpet player, right? And I liked that. I liked kind of the glory. Maybe it was probably imagined glory, but I enjoyed it nonetheless, right? And the only problem was that my best friend, Mark Morey, he was also a trumpet player and he was a better trumpet player than me. He was always better than me, right? And so we, throughout middle school and throughout high school, does anybody remember chair tests? Chair tests in band? Yeah. Yes. Go, Dave. Um, so we would have chair tests, and four out of five times, Mark Morey would, would get first chair, and I would get second chair, right? And so one out of, one out of five times, I would feel like, I have arrived. I am somebody. I am impressive. I am first chair, baby. Look at me. Yes, ladies, that's right. I am first chair. You've, you, you've heard correctly, you know? It's like, and so it was once every couple months, right? I was feel kind of on top of the world. But then there was the other four out of five weeks where Mark would, would get first chair and I would feel like he's stolen my place. Who am I? I'm not even worthy. What am I doing? Maybe I should just give up playing this trumpet. What is the point? Right? And so I let, whether I was sitting in this chair or this chair, de- decide whether I was joyful or not. Right? And that is crazy to allow a seating chart to, to, uh, to speak about my identity and who I am. But in that time, I learned, and before that, this, this just kind of helped ingrain it, right? I learned that uh, if I perform well, if, I, if I'm the best, then I'm valuable, then I'm impressive, then I am important. All right? 
And so I go on living this. And so when I'm in second chair, I allow that to rob my joy. You guys are probably like, Mark, what does this story have to do with anything? <laughs> Stick with me for a moment. All right. And so I let the position of my seating arrangement rob me of my joy. All right. Eventually I get out of high school. Praise God. And I move along. And uh, I, it was about 16 years ago. Right, and I remember it 16 years ago because Emma was a baby and she was sitting in a, a high chair. Uh, she was eating Cheerios, right? She's eating Cheerios and I'm there and Herman is there and my wife, Amber, is there and we're playing Monopoly, right? And, and so I remember very vividly, I, was, I, I roll the dice and I, I'm going, I go around, go, and I land on Baltic Avenue. I land on Baltic Avenue and I don't remember... What the... Here it is. Here it is. I don't remember why landing on Baltic Avenue was bad, but apparently it was, because I remember standing up, throwing the dice down, and storming off out of the room. I was in, I'm in the bathroom, and I'm crying, because I landed on Baltic Avenue. And I'm like, I am terrible. I never land on, I have no idea. I never land on States Avenue. I can't roll these dice. I'm no good. What? I can't win this game. I'm never playing this game again. And then it kind of switched into, this is just a picture of my life. I always come up short. I'm always second best. I'm always the loser. I can't get ahead. I am not valuable. I am not worthy. Right? And so I'm crying in the bathroom over Monopoly, and, and, it, it's, and I realize, Mark, this seems like a really extreme reaction to Monopoly. There is something, there is something else going on here, all right? There's something else. There's, a, there's something deeper. And so this kind of uh, woke me up to this realization that, I have some serious issues that I need to, to deal with, right? I just exploded because of Baltic Avenue. And so now this extreme reaction forced me kind of to look into the roots of these insecurities, to look into uh, all these worries. And so for the next couple of years of my life, I began to meet with people and talk to people and to see and understand and learn about the Father's love, that my value didn't come from what I did. It didn't come from who I was. It didn't come from what I had accomplished. But my value came because I was an adopted son of God. That he chose me. That he called me his son. And I can call him daddy. That is where my joy comes from. You know, and so now... Even though, you know, we're, we're still all in process, right? And so now, you know, I can still get that, that kind of feeling, right? I'm like, wow, what if I, what if I sermon is terrible, right? Uh, and then I'm going to lose my place and Cameron's going to fire me and I'm going to be out on the street, right? Or, or, oh, what if, what if, you know, I'm, I lead the worship team in Vandalia. I'm like, what if I do mess up there and worship is terrible and then I lose my place and everybody finds out that I'm a poser, right? Like these thoughts can still kind of come creeping in, but I've learned that those are lies that kind of try to jump in there and I go, no, that is not my identity. My identity is that I am the Son of God and I've been placed right here in this place for such a time as this, right? That I am the Son of the living God and He accepts me and He loves me regardless of my circumstance. And even if I do preach a terrible sermon and Cameron overreacts and fires me for it, he, you know what? 
I, am be, I would be okay, right? Because God loves me in spite of my circumstances, in spite of my accomplishments, right? He announced this good news of great joy to the shepherds, just to the regular common folk, just like me. And that is real joy. And I just need to let that soak into me. You know, we all just need to learn to soak in this truth that my joy comes from my acceptance from the Father and my joy comes from an eternal hope that I will be in the kingdom of heaven forever. And I have to learn, we all have to learn that we are loved just as we are. In Romans 5.10, it says that when we were still his enemies, God chose us. When we were still his enemies, God chose us. And that is so powerful, right? That, that God would send his angels to announce the Messiah to me when I was still kind of doing my own thing. When I was rejecting God, he still chose me. And I want to close with this verse, or this couple of verses from Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. It says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You know, that is a horrible picture of where we all have been at one point in our lives. Then in verse 4, it continues and says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... See, his kindness and love came when we were in that nasty place of verse 3, right? When, he, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Okay, friends, we have been justified by grace. And we have become heirs to an eternal hope. God has come and he has chosen you and he has chosen me. He has paid the price to set us free from sin and become his sons and his daughters once again. And this joy that we receive, it surpasses our current situation. It surpasses our current circumstances. It isn't dependent on everything going well. Right? Joy comes from our hope and an eternal reward. I've said that 700 times today, but I hope that it sinks in. Our joy comes from being called children of God. So I just want to encourage you to remember that you are beloved by God that he is passionately in love with you, and he wants an intimate relationship with you. He's proud of you. He's excited about who you are. And it's not based on what you've done, or your position, or your abilities. He loves you because he created you. He loves you, and he proved it by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. To die, to break the power of death, and to adopt you into his family forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. Father God, you are so good. We thank you that you have chosen us, that you have called us your sons and your daughters, that you love us and that you prove that love by sending Jesus to earth. 
We thank you for that. And would you fill us with joy? God, would you stir joy up in us as we, as we rest in those truths that we are adopted and that we have an eternal hope? God, and sometimes during this season, it can, a lot of us can feel far from joy. We feel far from happiness, God, and we can't make it happen. So we just invite you to come and do what only you can do. Would you come, Holy Spirit, would you come and birth joy inside of us? Yeah, thank you, Father. You're so good. You're so good. God, and as we take hold of this joy in our lives, God, as we hold on to this joy, God, help us to reveal it everywhere that we go. God, that when people see our lives, when they see the joy in our lives that rises above our circumstances, that rises above our situations, let them look and see you in us, God. Let them look at us and let them glorify you. We thank you, Jesus. You are amazing. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.